You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 6, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Back in 2002, um, on his way to becoming arguably the world's most renowned spoken word poet to come out of uh, the poetry slam movement of the early 2000s, there was a teacher from Brooklyn named Taylor Molly who literally burst onto the scene uh, in the deaf poetry slam show that Russell Simmons put on uh, that HBO held back in the early 2000s. And he shocked everyone and pretty much captivated everybody with his very first piece that was titled, Totally Like Whatever, you know? And while I have read it and heard it hundreds of times since I first was exposed to it in the early 2000s, I am not going to try to perform it for you by memory, but I am going to read it to you because I want you to hear it, and I'll do my best to do it as well as he would. In case you hadn't noticed, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about or believe strongly in what you're saying. Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows have been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences even when those sentences aren't like questions, you know? Declarative sentences, so-called such because they used to like declare things to be true, okay? As opposed to other things that are like totally not, have been infected by a hip and tragically cool interrogative tone, you know? Like, don't think I'm uncool just because I've noticed this. This is just like the word on the street, you know? It's just like what I've heard. I have nothing personally invested in my own opinion, okay? I'm just inviting you to join me on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty, okay? You know? What has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been, like, chopped down with the rest of the rainforest? You know? Or do we have, like, nothing to say? Has society so, like, totally, I mean, you know, that we've just gotten to the point where it's like, whatever? And so actually, our disarticulationness is just a clever sort of like thing to disguise the fact that we've become the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since, you know, a long, long time ago. I 
entreat you. I implore you. I exhort you. I must challenge you to speak with conviction, to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you believe it. Because contrary to the wisdom of the modern bumper sticker, it's not simply enough for you to say you question authority. No, you have to speak with it too. Conviction. It's the product of firmly held beliefs. It requires courage. This is the very thing as we've been journeying through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the church in Ephesus before he would give his life up there in Rome This kind of conviction and courage is the very thing that Paul has been trying to stir in the church throughout this letter. You know, in these days, with gospel imposters abounding, with messages of empty and hollow grace spreading through churches like a disease, threatening the faith of many, Paul has reminded, like he's been beating on a drum, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Your convictions. You see, true conviction is becoming an endangered species in our culture. The air in which we breathe is a mixture of subjectivism and relativism and Both are proliferating at a rapid rate. You know, the general assumption that there is no such thing as an objective truth. Therefore, whatever is right or true or good for me may or may not be good for you. And in that relativistic atmosphere, you and I then have the right to determine what's true or good without ever having to submit that assumption to any objective outside authority other than ourselves. This is the reality of the air we take in. It's the pillars, the foundation of our contemporary cultural constitution. This means that to have and speak with conviction on anything other than what Ever part of a cultural line you find yourself on and speaking in any way with any manner of conviction about a cultural tolerance separate from what one group or another would define that as or whatever one cultural party or another would look towards is going to make you very unpopular. In fact, one writer said it this way. I found it very astute. He said, if you commend a truth with confidence and you make a case for it on the basis of objective evidence, and you call on people with urgency to change their minds and believe it, it's what we would call repentance when we're talking about the gospel, you will be viewed by the average American as arrogant and even dangerous. But if you avoid talking about truth or give the impression that truth is unattainable, And if you avoid words like should and ought and must, 
then you will signal to people that there is no objective truth and there are no moral absolutes. Just finish your sentences with a lot of parenthetical you knows and interrogative tones. And people will see you as humble. Confidence that you know things that, ought, that people ought to believe is seen as the essence of arrogance today. On the other hand, a sense of uncertainty, you know, about what is true and about what, how one ought to live, accompanied by an open-ended ethic and an absence of personal conviction on controversial matters is seen now as the essence of humility. It's not easy to be thought of or labeled as arrogant or dangerous, along with a whole host of other adjectives that follow along those labels for anyone today that may speak with any manner of biblical conviction. It's okay to admit that it actually feels good to be liked. That's true. It feels good to be liked. It feels good to be seen as non-threatening, unoffensive. It feels good to be seen as humble in light of these things. It's okay to say that, all right? That's actually true. The temptation that Paul has been dealing with in Timothy's life and in the life of the church even to this day is that in days like this, when speaking with any manner of conviction about gospel truth and righteousness and holiness will bring an onslaught of pressure and rejection and with it, the temptation to somehow slip around that troublesome response. The temptation is that you and I may lose our theological and moral bearings. Like a ship out at sea that's lost its bearing. The pressure can feel so great and mounting that the Temptation may be that you and I would lose our theological and moral nerve. That pressure is enormous, which means the need for gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded courage to live and speak with conviction is tremendous. This is the ongoing circular line of thinking and encouragement and the drumbeat that Paul has been banging throughout this entire letter as he awaits the executioner to come and take him to his death. And he speaks of long-term health, viability, and encouragement to Timothy, whom he loves, and the church in Ephesus, who he spent the most time with loving. This is what is on his heart and his mind. So it should come as no surprise as we pick the letter back up. He's going to get back to this thing one more time because it's what we need to hear. And what Paul is going to remind Timothy and the church of is this. In these days, these last days, 
Itching ear disease is probably the most threatening thing facing the vitality of the church today. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 3. Let's pick up the challenge, and then we'll look to how he responds to it. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Please tell me how to achieve the self-fulfillment I so desperately want to find. What is it I need to do to live out the personal sense of expression that I find so essential? Where are the counselors and the speakers and the writers and the preachers that will repackage the same old line of simply follow that desire and passion in your heart and you know what? The universe will conspire to make your dreams come true. Be you and be true to you and it'll all work out. As one writer wrote in trying to rephrase the reality of the disease, he said, the itching ear disease leads us today in the 21st century to curate blog feeds, podcast feeds, video channels to suit our own internal passions. Please make me more comfortable with what I want. Make me more comfortable with what I desire. Please don't say anything that would make me uncomfortable by exposing God's passions and desires to me that may be contrary to what it is I want. And so we accumulate for ourselves voices that we judge not on the basis of the objective outside authority of God's word, but on the basis of how they suit our own desires. Saying what it is we really want to hear. Friends, who is in your ear all day? What does the curated list look like for you? What teachers are you compiling for yourself? What do you think the effect of their voice over time will be? As one writer said, don't think that teaching or that entertainment isn't teaching. He asked this question, do you expose yourself to words that pierce your ears with the truth or tickle them with myths? Do the voices challenge your sinful passions or just suit them? Friends, notice as we listen to Paul as he's writing this letter to the church that this disease is a degenerative one. Did you hear how he explained it? First, we grow weary with healthy teaching. The sound, nourishing words he's already talked about. We grow weary with seeing the reality of our sin. We grow weary, and it seems like, how do you grow weary with that? But it seems we grow weary with seeing, again, the necessity of the grace of God for sinners like us and the fulfillment of all that we need that God has provided in his son. We grow weary with the sound, nourishing, healthy teaching. And so we begin to accumulate for ourselves new teachers that fit whatever it is our heart wants to hear. And then in verse 4, listen to how he describes it. 
We turn away from listening to the truth and look, wander. Wander off into myths. It's a disease of drift. That's what it is. It's one step at a time. It's one small bite of the hollow fruit at a time. It's drift. And the scary thing is it can be informal. It can be conversational. It can seem unthreatening. It can feel so easy. These are the kinds of things that Paul's already been exposing and warning Timothy and the church about. In their day specifically, it was the irreverent babble, the foolish and ignorant controversies, those things that you would take bites of one at a time, but bite the apple enough times and you've eaten the whole thing. Drift. In Paul's day, the thing that he was most concerned about for this church because of where they were located and the realities of what they were facing very specifically was drifting off into these myths. It's a word that Paul would use four other times in his pastoral letters. And when you think about who he's writing to in the church in Ephesus and the reality of that particular city being the regional hub of the worship of Artemis there in that Roman region, as well as the hub for all of the magical arts in the region. There were fanciful myths associated with the religions of those days that would promise people paradise that was lost in the garden while not being able to fulfill the very thing that God had promised. And they wander off into these myths that expect nothing of them, but promise only everything their sinful heart could desire. Now, even today, it's a word that gets thrown around. Scholars today will use this word myth when talking about the Bible. And it'll sound so informal and it'll, it'll sound so easy. They'll say the Bible could be beneficial even if it isn't necessary, necessarily true. And so we take a bite. And we take another bite. Because on the surface, it sounds good. I've got a book on my shelf that I actually enjoy. Um, I'm grateful that for the work that God has continued to do in my heart. I feel like with what he's done on my heart and the people that he has put around me, I, I can read the book with an air of caution, you know, and, and understand what's being said and, and be able to take it for what it's worth. But I, this particular book written by a scholar, tremendous scholar, I would say is on the bookshelves of at least 50 to 60% of this church. And you're like, I don't buy these scholarly books on these things. Yeah, you do. This particular scholar is a global phenomenon. If you haven't read him, you've listened to him. His name's Jordan Peterson. You probably have 12 Rules for Life. It has swept the globe. He's a tremendous intellect. He doesn't believe the Bible is true. Now, much of what he says, especially in that book, and if you listen to him or watch him online, much of what he says has tremendously deep echoes of biblical holiness, of biblical morality. But he would say, it can be beneficial even if it's not true. What do I mean? Listen to his own words about Jesus' death on the cross. The account of Jesus' death conveys the principle of substitution. 
not as an atonement for sin, but as a tragic reality of life. That when one person sin, sins, others might pay for it. It's true. When you sin, you simply don't harm yourself. You might convince yourself that that's the case, that it's isolated just to you, but it's never true. Your sin impacts not only yourself, but those around you. That's a true reality. But that's not the essence of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But it sounds good. And so you bite. And you keep biting. Until the idea that the Bible being beneficial but doesn't necessarily have to be true is something you swallow. In Peterson's account, biblical narratives are fascinating tales that contain kernels of truth. And do you know what's happened? People around the world, in particular young men, young men in this country, many who have even grown up in the church, they have flocked to him by the thousands because they've grown up without anyone in their life being willing to speak to them with any manner of conviction about integrity, about righteousness, and about holiness. So they flock to someone who's willing to tell them something that sounds like the truth, whether they want to hear it or not. Because for generations, pastors and parents haven't done it. And he's willing to do it. And it has deep echoes of biblical holiness and morality. But yet in the end, it's hollow. And tens of thousands by the number are taking a bite and another bite and another bite. Until they've wandered off into the myth that this it might be beneficial, even if it isn't necessarily true. The problem of itching ears, the disease, is not new to the church in Paul's day. It isn't new to us. The prophets of old faced it with Israel. In Isaiah 30, God's people looked at Isaiah and said, Don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. In fact, if you've been following along with us in our community Bible reading, you've spent a while now in Jeremiah. We mentioned it last time. This was the same reality amongst God's people in Jeremiah's day too. In Jeremiah's day, the temple was thriving. And they had their teachers that they loved. One of them was Pashur. He was the biggest one. He seemed to draw the biggest crowds. And what he was so adept in doing was being able to find a portion of God's word and speak it in such a way that regardless of what the people were facing, what they were experiencing, and what they were going through, they left feeling like they were prosperous. Tell us some more, Pashur. And so Jeremiah, of course, in his lamenting ways, cries out to the Lord and, and exposes the problem that these teachers that everybody loves to listen to and have accumulated for themselves have only healed the wound of God's people lightly, saying peace, peace, and other things when it really doesn't exist. So Timothy, Redemption Hill, as God's ambassadors, you're going to have to say things that are not going to scratch people's itch. And when you do, 
you'll need to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you believe it. You're going to have to speak with conviction. And when you do, know this. People are going to reject it. And they're going to reject you. They're going to turn away from the truth, and they're going to turn away from you. But as for you, continue in what you have firmly believed. Continue in your convictions. Even more, look at verse 1. Here's part of what continuing looks like. I charge you. That's weighty language. I charge you. And I want you to imagine Paul here. This is to read it like a human to the best of your ability. I mean, the, the best that we can kind of put ourselves in a situation to try to hear the voice and see it. He's in prison. He's in the Mamertine prison. He's chained up. He's in a worse situation than he has been in before in prison. He's awaiting his own execution that can come at any moment. He's writing a letter to the man that he has mentored for years and traveled with and loves like a son, to the church that he spent the time in teaching and loving so much that in his last journey, he made a detour just to see those elders one more time to cry and to pray with. And he's writing, and he's been writing this letter, looking at the threats of the church and the long-term vitality of God's people and what's at hand. And he's been trying to build this courage and conviction into the church. And now he's coming to the crescendo of the letter. This is all of the emotion. This is all of it coming out. He's sitting there writing. I imagine his hand just moving. I charge you. This is no mere, I implore you. I encourage you. No, I charge you in the presence of God. This isn't my idea, Timothy. This is the commission that comes from the king. This is a divine charge. So when you get nervous and you get tempted to give in to the pressure, remember, this is his charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. It's like he can't get enough intensifications. If in God's presence isn't enough, let's just keep going. In the Christ Jesus, the kings, who's going to come back and judge the living and the dead, who's going to fulfill his kingdom. You need to get this. You feel it. The intensity in Paul's heart is just pouring out through this pen in light of the urgency of eternity. In light of of the person and the work of Jesus in light of the reality that this king is returning to bring final fulfillment to the kingdom he's already begun, in light of the day that he returns and his judgment of the living and the dead, in the light of the urgency of eternity, with the view of the end squarely before your eyes, Preach the word. In light of it all, the days in which you live, the temptations that come, the pain, the rejection that will abound in light of eternity and what we know to be true, 
Here is the vaccine for the itching ear disease that threatens the vitality of God's people. Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word, pastors and teachers that God would call to his church throughout generations. Preach the word, disciples of Jesus called by God as his ambassadors. Make the good news of God's salvation through his son as declared in his word known all around. When we read this verse in particular, the immediate association is with someone like me standing up here doing what I'm doing right now. And to a degree, that's true. But that isn't exactly what was in mind in the words that Paul uses in this verse in this part of the letter. That preach, the word behind it is the word that would have been used of a town herald whose responsibility was to get to the middle of the square, get to the middle of the market, get to the middle of the village, usually stand up on some kind of box, gather people's attention, maybe make a noise or ring a bell, and then they would open their mouth and with conviction declare the announcement that they had been assigned to make to all who were around and would listen. It's to herald the good news of God's grace through his son. It's to make the real Jesus known as you open up your mouth and speak the truth of his reign and God's grace through him to all who would receive him by faith. That's what Paul is talking about. It's to lift up your voice and to make it known with no invisible question marks and no parenthetical you knows attaching themselves to any statements that you're making about Jesus. It's conviction. And when you open up your mouth and when you speak, What it is you speak of is not your own opinion. It's not your own truth. It's not your best idea. It's not your favorite psychological theory. It's not your favorite political hobby horse. You open up your mouth and you speak and you declare and you proclaim the good deposit that Paul's already spoken of, the sound teaching, the truth, the faith, the God-breathed scriptures that are profitable for salvation and transformation. You proclaim God's word about God's son through his gospel from his scriptures. That's what you do. Whether you're standing in a place like this or sitting down next to someone over a cup of coffee, Paul's been very clear to Timothy and the church already. We're called to hear these words and believe these words and obey these words and guard these words and even suffer for these words. But it cannot be overlooked that you are called by God to communicate these words. Because it's the good news of salvation for sinners. So Paul is saying the antidote to the itching ear disease that threatens the vitality of God's people in the church is to proclaim like a herald in the marketplace 
to lift up your voice without fear or trying to gain favor with those who would listen and make God's salvation through his son boldly known. Or as Taylor Molly would say, to be willing to walk out on a limb and speak with conviction about that which you know to be true, about the real Jesus and the promise of God's grace for all who would repent and believe in him. In other words, what Paul is saying is, Timothy and church, you've got to tell people what God has to say. And let's be honest, that's a lot harder than telling people what it is they want to hear. I promise you, it's a lot harder. That's why Paul said in chapter 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Because it's a lot easier to tell people what they want to hear or to tell people your favorite antidote or to tell people your favorite you know, counseling gym you read somewhere than it is to tell them the truth of their sin from God's word and the promise of God's grace through repentance and faith in his son. Now, this letter, and I'll just be very clear so you can understand, this letter that Paul was writing, it has very specific, and then it has more broad and general application and implication for those who would hear it then and those who would hear it now as God has preserved this inspired word for us. So there was a very specific application for Timothy in the role that he was in. There's a little more specific application for those who may serve as pastors and teachers and leaders in the church through the ages, but there's a very general application still for all who are disciples of Jesus. And so I'll put it in this middle category just so you can see what this means even for me and what I do. And in the role that I have here in this church that you have kindly appointed me to, at least a third of my week is devoted to getting ready for a morning like this. So very practically, Mondays and Wednesdays, my phone is on do not disturb. No one but my family can actually get through on my phone. So if you've called me, texted me, emailed me, you didn't hear from me because I didn't even get it. Because the work week starts for me on Sunday. So at 5 o'clock this morning, I was up praying and finishing this message. And so because this is what's in my mind and this is what's in my heart, the very next day I'm right going for the next week because it's already in my head. I don't walk away from it, and I have to go back to it. So I'm in it on Monday, and in a perfect week, I'm in it again on Wednesday. And if things have been going really well on Monday and Wednesday, then maybe I don't need to take Friday morning to finish it. I've already kind of gotten where I want to be before the next Sunday, but there never is a perfect week. But at least a third of my week is devoted to the task of rightly handling God's word in order to speak it with some manner of clarity and conviction And I will tell you, as someone who's done it 13 years at this church and then for years previously elsewhere, it is a lot harder, even with the time that I have to work on it, it's a lot harder to stand up here and tell you what God says than to stand up here and tell you what I think you want to hear and what I would prefer to talk about. I have favorite stories. I have favorite anecdotes. I have favorite topics. I have favorite things. I'm human. And it would be a lot easier for me to do that. But that is not the charge that God has given his people. We prioritize hearing God's word. You, as part of this body, 
should prioritize hearing this. If at any point any of us wander off into speaking majoritively what our opinions on certain things are or our favorite stories are about something else, you have a responsibility. Because we're meant to prioritize this word. But rarely do we ever have a perfect week, right? Rarely is your week ever perfect where you've had the time that you would want to cut straight God's word for your own heart and cut straight God's word so that you're ready to be able to speak it well to others when the opportunity comes. But guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was the perfect week or not. Paul says to speak, preach, proclaim this word about Jesus from the scriptures for salvation and you have to be ready. In season and out of season. That means whether it's convenient for you or not. He's not talking about the listener. He's talking about the speaker. Whether you feel like it or not. Whether the moment is convenient to you or not. There's an urgency here. These are eternal matters that are at stake. You're speaking matters of life or death. And the reality of it is, all of us, even preachers, we all have our own internal and inherent excuses for not speaking the gospel, for not proclaiming the gospel, for not gossiping the gospel and the opportunities and situations God gives us, even on Sunday mornings like this. Paul says it doesn't matter what your week was like. It doesn't matter what other things came up in the lives of people and in the lives of an organization that you have to give your attention to when you would have given it to something else. It doesn't matter. You've got to be ready because there's an urgency here. So whether I feel as prepared as I would want to be or not, whether you're in masks or not, and I can't tell if you're even listening if I can't tell if you're even tracking along because I can't make it out from all of your eyes, whether my week was occupied with other things that were very important, doesn't matter. You have to be ready in season and out to speak with courage that's born from the grace of God. As we speak God's word about his son, that we might reprove or correct when correction is needed, that we might rebuke, which is simply not just to correct and say something's wrong, but it's to point back in the right direction, that we might be able to direct, we might be able to rebuke and exhort to deposit courage into the heart of another brother or sister in Christ as we speak God's word about his son to them. And we do it, Paul says, with complete patience and teaching. We don't just drop a line on someone in the moment. No, there's a teaching involved. And it's not the teaching of get out your paper, get out your pen, let me tell you what you need to know. It's helping to reframe people's narratives of their life that they're believing in their mind in light of God's narrative about his son. 
Every single one of us gets narratives like records that are skipping in our minds all the time, just saying the same thing over and over and over again about who we think we are and what we think about this life and who God is and how we're experiencing it. And our responsibility is to be able to help reframe that narrative in light of the gospel. To take the riches of this word about God's son and be able to apply it to the realities of one another's lives. That's the teaching that Paul is talking about. You can't just drop a verse on somebody in the middle of something and expect that that's it. And you've got to do it with patience. Now here's the thing. This patience isn't necessarily patience with each other. That's important. He's talked about that. This is patience. In speaking and proclaiming and teaching and all that is involved as an ambassador of God's gospel in the lives of other people, doing it whether you see anything happen or not. Whether there's any noticeable impact in the moment or not, because your confidence isn't there, it's in the promise that God's word never returns void. And you have patience, knowing that in the end, it's God by his Holy Spirit who does the work in people's hearts. And you're trusting, even in the moment, whether it's obvious or not, that his word is not going to return void. That he is doing his work by his spirit for his glory and this person's good through you as his ambassador. So be ready. And as for you, especially in comparison to those that Paul has been talking about in these last days, always be sober-minded. That's steady not inebriated by heresy that tickles your ears and your desires. Not intoxicated by your own internal passions. Steady. Endure suffering because it's not going to be easy to be Jesus' disciple. It's not going to be easy to be an ambassador of the king. He said it over and over and over again. You know why? Because we have to hear it over and over and over again. Endure suffering because he's worth it. Because the king is worth it. And fulfill your ministry. Alistair Begg is a pastor in Memphis. Some of you might be familiar with him. He was speaking at a lunch conference of pastors, and he said that I increasingly find this verse to be the anchor point of all my days. I wake up on a Monday, and I say, what am I going to do now? And so I say to myself, well, I think I'll keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge the responsibilities God has called me to. And when I'm lifted up by a little encouragement, which sometimes comes, I say to myself, well, what do I do? And the answer is the same. Keep your head, endure hardship, and so on. And when the waves of discouragement beat on me, and I feel like I just want to run away in the hills somewhere, what do I do? I tell myself, well, keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge the responsibilities of your calling. Friends, this charge of God 
is the same to us today as it was to Paul and Timothy in the church then. In the presence of difficult days, in the reality of deceptive doctrines, continue in the God-breathed words that alone are profitable for salvation and transformation that you have learned and firmly believed. Period. Proclaim this word of God's grace to broken sinners like you and I through his son with conviction. Stay steady. Keep your head. Endure the difficulty that comes as the disciple of Jesus by the power of God, thus fulfilling the ministry that God has for you as his ambassador today. Friends, it is for this that God's son came and lived the life that you and I were created to live and then willingly died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. He suffered God's just judgment in our place and God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and vindicated that acceptance by raising him from the dead three days later so that anyone who would turn from their sin and from their ear-tickling passions and desires to Jesus as Savior and King, God would indeed forgive their sins, give them a new heart, and commission them as his ambassadors in these days and prepare them to reign with him in his kingdom forever. This is the good news that we herald as we open our mouths. It is the good news by which we are saved and strengthened for the days ahead. We declare this good news as we open our mouths and we use our voices. But we also proclaim our confidence in this good news in moments like this when God's people are all gathered together and we do it as we receive communion together remembering the broken body of Jesus in our place for our sins, his blood spilled for our justification. And when by faith you and I receive those elements, remembering his work on our behalf, we are proclaiming physically, not just with our voices, but physically our confidence in God's promises and in God's grace and in God's salvation to us through Jesus we get to return to that proclamation together this morning. Throughout COVID, you may realize that we haven't actually taken communion together, and there were a lot of reasons behind that, not just the health regulations, but the reality that this is a meal that was ordained by God for his people to take together. It's a corporate meal. And during the regulations of the COVID season, we were actually placing restrictions on who could actually come and be with us in that morning. Therefore, we were placing restrictions on who would actually be able to engage in that corporate meal that were beyond that of the restriction that God put on the meal of one having placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus. But today, we don't have those restrictions. Anyone who wants to be here this morning could be here. So this morning, for all who have believed upon Jesus, who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus, believing in their heart and proclaiming with their mouth that he is indeed Savior and King, we now together will proclaim that same confidence in him as we take communion together. 
And it's going to look a little different than it used to, just so you know. I dropped it in the first service. I did it here too. I know you don't like to touch people yet, so we're not going to make you touch the same bread and dip it in the same cup for a little while. We have these self-service communion element things. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray. The musicians will begin to play, and you'll have a moment of time to reflect. And then you'll be asked to stand and come forward. And for all who have indeed believed upon Jesus as King and Savior, you're invited to come and get your own communion element and take it back to your seat. And I don't think they had to do this back then, but you peel back the top layer and there's the bread and (laughs) you peel back the next layer and there's the juice. You don't have to dip it. You can actually take it. You can actually drink it. And I don't think they did this back then either, but there's a bucket near your pew that you can actually put it in when you're done. But I'm going to pray and we're going together proclaim our confidence in the person and work of Jesus on our behalf together. And this is something we've been waiting to do for a year. So Let me pray for us, and we'll continue this morning. Father, we need to learn to live by the truth of your word and not governed by our feelings, not governed by the world's opinions, not governed by what the latest statistical surveys tell us about what's acceptable anymore, not governed by the way that advertisers want to push and pull our desires and our hearts Lord, we need you by your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and through your word to train us to take those things less seriously and train us to listen to your word, to test everything against what you have said and what you have revealed to us in your son to help us rest in the confidence that is ours as we understand our life in relation to your purposes and your will and your grace. We need you to do that this morning, and we ask that you would do it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.